Good evening. I'd like to welcome everyone to the North Rose South Borough Regional School Committee open meeting of Wednesday, January 18th, 2023, and it is 6.32. Um, first on the agenda is public comment. No public comment for this evening yet. Um, so we move to action on the minutes. The first would be our open meeting discussion of January 21st, 2022. Any, any comments on those minutes? Oh, we need a motion to accept those. I make a motion to approve and release the open meeting minutes of December 21st, 2022. Second. Second. And that's the open meeting. Okay. Uh, first, uh, Chris and second, um, Karen. Um, all in favor? Those passed unanimously. Uh, and then we have the executive session minutes of December 21st. Um, that would be a vote and retain. Um, any? I make a I make a motion that we um, approve but retain the executive session minutes of December 21st, 2022. Second. Um, first, uh, Chris, and second, Matthew. All in favor of that one? That's unanimous. That passes. That brings us, uh, there's no educational policy at this time to uh, bring forward. So we have new business. Turn that over to the superintendent. Sure. So legislative update. Um, so I believe at the January meeting, I did share with the committee that the um, OSD um, increase of 14% to out of district special education tuition is set and that will not change. So our advocacy will shift to our legislative delegation and advocating for an increase in circuit breaker. Um, so we do have a draft letter um, that we plan on having the chair sign and we will send that off on behalf of the <coughs> regional school committee. Um, also, just in terms of legislative update, the, with the changing of the governor, the governor does have additional time to submit um, her budget so that is anticipated to be released at the end of February, which does impact our budget process because we do not have all of the data that we typically would have at the end of January. So a lot of the budget projections that we'll be um, moving forward with are based on FY23 um, information. And as the state provides additional information, we'll be adjusting our budgets accordingly. And those are the two legislative updates that I have this evening. Probably where the governor's new. Sometimes they signal where they're going to be, but there's probably no <laughs> signaling. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, Becky and I are monitoring the kind of the financial landscape, and hopefully, we'll get some indication of um, Chapter 70 in in the next couple weeks or a few weeks. Um, but there's been no signals yet. Okay. Thank you. And uh, next, we're lucky to have our science department present tonight. We have some interesting. Um, instruction pieces over there so so this evening we have our very talented um, Algonquin Regional High School uh, department chair Lori Zanini for science and I just before she begins I just want to acknowledge uh, Lori's leadership over the past 36 years um, One and only job. so so Lori has <laughs> announced that she'll be retiring at the conclusion of the 23-24 <coughs> academic year mm -hmm. So this is her final um, department chair presentation to the committee because it's every other year. So 
Um, there'll be many opportunities to acknowledge Lorraine's great work in the months and year ahead, um, but I thought it would be nice just to acknowledge Lorraine, her great work. 36 years. I'm lucky. I'm lucky to work with a, a great school system, um, very supportive you know, leadership here. It's been extremely exciting to have Sean as the principal. Um, I've worked with Greg in both of his roles and everyone else, so I can't thank everybody for providing me with a great opportunity to, so. Anyways, let's go on to the science. It's <laughs> very easy for me to talk about. It's, um, so thank you, um, Greg and Mr. <coughs> Chairman and all the members of the central office and school committee members. I'm lucky tonight to be here with two of my um, <coughs> department members. I have Dan Welty, who's gonna talk about our physics department, and I have Dr. Brian Kelly, who will talk about the biology, and I'll cover the chemistry. Um, our focus this year has been back to the basics, and that really was something that Sean instilled on us at the beginning of the year. It's nice to go back to the basics after a couple of years of COVID and doing things a little bit differently. So Brian's going to talk about our MCAS preparedness, um, and we're really proud of where we're at with that. But again, our focus has really been providing your students um, with a strong lab-based science curriculum. And I really think if you were to come um, during the day and walk through the science department, you would see all of our students engaged in some kind of lab activity. Um, over the COVID years, we, we still provided it, but we were using some online tools also. So along with that, back to the basics, we're good old problem solvers. We're good old paper and pencil. So um, we don't rely on the technology as much as maybe others do, but we really are getting our kids into the science <clears throat> labs, looking at things analytically, collaboratively to solve the problems. Along with, we want our kids to be better scientific writers. So we've encompassed um, having kids write CERs with their labs, and we've been working with the middle school and asking <clears throat> them to have those kids practice those skills as they move up. Um, We've worked on common midterms um, and finals. We've been doing that for quite a long time for our biochem and physics. But since Sean's leadership has come on, we've really taken the time now to look at the um, data, analyze the data, to talk about it collaboratively, to see where we can make changes and improvements in our curriculum. Something that I think is really a strong benefit to our department on our PLCs that we offer, and that comes from our leadership team providing us that opportunity. We have four. Uh, professional learning communities running right now. We have a biology. Brian will talk about that. We have a forensics, and I'll get to that, and fundamental chemistry and fundamental physics. So it's a great opportunity for teachers to collaborate, collaborate <laughs> twice a week in our rotation. <clears throat> Before the gentlemen here talk about the disciplines, I just want to look at our AP scores. Besides us being very successful in our um, biology MCAS, our AP scores are something to really highlight. And I think this comes from a couple of things. Um, our kids are really excited about taking AP courses here, but that comes from them being excited at the initial level. So the teachers that have these kids for year one in biochem physics have to spark some kind of interest for them to want to go on and take it. We do offer three biology sections three AP Bio, we have two AP Chem, two AP Physics C, which is the tougher of the two physics, um, 
and two AP environmental. So those numbers have grown over the year of the number of sections that we're offering. And you can see from the, the scores there how successful our students are compared to the global scores and the Massachusetts scores. They really do an incredible job. So we've got incredible teachers teaching it, both at the AP level, but also at the initial levels. Okay, um, I'm gonna let Brian take over, but I just wanna look at, when you look at the, the years of service, I think that's something to be noted. Teachers come here and it's like that destination school. It's something to be said when you see teachers that have been here 18 years, 14 years, Chrissy Conley, 22 years. Um, and of course, we've got a couple of new teachers, but it, it says something again about your district, so. Okay, Brian. All right, go for it. Thank you. Again, as Laura said, thank you for having us tonight. Uh, I just want to start off, you know, in biology, we are known as the MCAS subject of the sciences. And so we'll start right off by talking about um, how difficult the past two years have been just in the disruption, as we all know, of the pandemic. And there was a halting to the MCAS tests. Uh, and in science with biology, we also faced a new computer-based test and a new test curriculum aligned with the 2016 curriculum frameworks um, based on the NGSS, the Next Generation Science Standards. And so we're really proud to say that as um, biology, as a biology team, we have been able to maintain our incredibly high pass rate and um, the meeting and exceeding expectations over the past two years, which um, is ex especially exciting for us because of the work we've been doing, as Lori said, in our PLCs this year and over the past two years. We have really been focusing <coughs> the past two years of, as a team to create an experience for freshmen that not only teaches them the curriculum, but also transitions them into high school science and the high school life, which is often a very difficult transition, especially over the last couple of years. But the work we've been doing has really been focused on not only making sure that our curriculum is aligned to the new standards, but also that we don't teach to a test, that we teach and prepare for a test. So we um, focus a lot on what is going to grab the students in the sciences and get them interested and what's going to be interesting to them so that they buy into it and then become prepared for the, for the test. Additionally, we've been aligning everything to our school's goals now, which are amazing. The, uh, the ability to create an even playing field create culturally responsive education, um, allow um, for critical thinking is by our portrait of a graduate that we are using. And so we have spent the past couple of years realigning a lot of our labs for specifically for training in the CER model, the claim evidence reasoning model. We have added in the past couple of years a co-taught class for um, English language learners. And because of that, we're very proud to say that every single language learner passed MCAS last year, which is terrific because of the fact that we are really, hopefully, we're doing our job to even that playing field and make this curriculum accessible. But also in our PLC, we've added some uh, resources for MCAS. We spent a lot of time creating, using our Canvas platform, the uh, a preparedness page for our MCAS, so students can log on, they can find videos, practice tests, resources, worksheets, everything they need 
as well as um, coming after and getting help from our peer tutors as well as teachers. Um, so what we've been doing over the past couple years is really trying to keep our curriculum current and keep it interesting, grab the students, and make sure we are really fostering those critical thinking skills and leveling the playing field for our diverse student body. So thank you. I think that sums it up. Thank you. Nice job. Just some pictures of our bio students. And you can see oh. the center slide <coughs> in the bottom row um, is something that you'd see in our co-taught um, freshman biology class. So that we're <coughs> acknowledging our ELL students. So. All right, chemistry. So you can see there's plenty of years of experience there. We do have two younger teachers. <coughs> one, though, Josh came from another school, so he has some experience behind him. And then we've got Emma, who's, this is her third year. So again, that experience is something to be acknowledged. Chemistry, very much, um, as I said before, we're really getting our kids into the labs, providing that strong hands-on experience critical thinkers, and we've seen kids struggle. They don't like to be, I'm not telling you this right now, we're pushing them to think on their own. I can't look that up. No, you can't look that up. You can talk to somebody. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we're seeing kids challenged a little bit. You know, they're used to looking it up on the computer, but we're making them have good old conversation um, to solve their problems. And I think that's something that we're very proud of. Um, again, the CERs, the claim evidence and reasoning, good writers. <coughs> we have a PLC in our fundamental chemistry, and we do one in the fundamental physics. And this year our focus has been, we have a new teacher teaching the fundamental for the first time with a, an experienced teacher. So it's nice to give them the time to be able to collaborate, excuse me, <coughs> on that curriculum and to also grow that curriculum. Um, the next thing I want to highlight is our Halloween show. We've been doing the Halloween show forever. And it is one of the, the highlights for a chemistry student. It's obviously in October. We use that um, Halloween demo day to really excite the kids on chemistry. Um, all chemistry students come in. We do it seven periods. Um, we'll have three or four classes in a classroom. And we do 20 demos that we then connect throughout the year. And we'll say, oh, do you remember the wish bottle? Do you remember now seeing that? What kind of reaction is that? So I'm just going to show you real quick what it looks like. We spend a lot of time with the props. But you know, this was the, the highlight. This is the. So we want to excite them. And that, that was clearly excites them. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a fire I, extinguisher just <laughs> off screen, by the way. I was aware when this happened. I was there when this happened. One teacher, I do the demo, and I pray every single time that nothing's going to go wrong. <laughs> Let me tell you. So I've got one more year to do it, and I'll make sure I have a waiver, OK, or something, some insurance policy. Um, all right, so this. Do I have to go out? Yeah, if you go to there, that should do it. OK. All right, I'm going to turn it over to Dan. You've got some wow factors, too. <laughs> but again, take a peek at the, the years of experience there. So all right, Dan. All right, thank you. <clears throat> uh, so physics, obviously, that's junior year and uh, one of the required science courses there. 
Uh, you know, I think our teachers really strive to be, like the engineering design process, you know, a lot of students are encouraged to be creative, apply physics to their real life, uh, and obviously to solve problems. Uh, I think there's a variety of different uh, engineering design process things that we do at uh, that level. And one thing that I just uh, found this year for my first time, I spent a lot of time on Twitter, which is a big thing for education. Um, there's a lot of teachers on Twitter. And there was a teacher in Connecticut that tweeted about this roller coaster project he did. And I remembered it, I remembered it, and finally I think in October I said, all right, I'm gonna tweet at him and, and get some more information. So hence these creations by my honors classes. Um, there were, there's like 12 more upstairs. Uh, but to see them go from this to that um, has been pretty amazing. Um, with very, you know, without seeing any ones that were built before. You know, they, this was my first year trying that project. Um, so it was all about conservation of energy. They had to figure out how to design it, put all the pieces together, design it, and then also do calculations though too, right? There are different measurements we took of height, speed, to look at how energy was conserved, transformed, and eventually how much was lost to thermal energy by the time it went from the top to the bottom. Um, <coughs> that was using a multitude of assessments as we went through our energy unit. Um, PLC for physics. Uh, Nate, that's uh, Nate Lardis and Ken Wadman have been working super hard all uh, fall and now all winter to improve that course. And there's a, I know there's a lot more hands-on activities and more projects focused on that, connecting those kids' physics to the real world, um, as we do in all those classes. But I know they've been working super hard with that um, and really redesigning things. And even the midterm was much more redesigned uh, than it has been in the past. So, um, but we're always working hard to come up with new ideas. Um, we're always talking about what people are doing and sharing those ideas um, to try to make our classes <coughs> as fun as we can. So. And the kids were did an awesome job on these roller coasters. I went in and just to see the kids engaged in, again, having those conversations, not looking up on the internet how they're going to do it. So um, there's some more activities in our physics class. Um, Electives. So students here take three years of required science, biochem, physics, and then we have 11 um, electives that we offer in our department for the APs. But at just as important as those APs, we have the additional um, courses. And I'm going to highlight a couple of them. So first of all, we have 11 electives. We have over 550 students that take a fourth year of science. That's exciting to me to see the kids want to go on and learn some other field. This year we brought back forensics. It was on a hiatus. The teacher that had um, designed the curriculum here, she retired. Nobody was real eager, but we knew there was really a desire for kids to want to take forensics. We have 124 kids currently taking forensics. I've never taught forensics and I am one of those teachers. And let me tell you, it's been exciting. And just in the news, for Massachusetts, they provided us so much. <laughs> um, so um, we offer six sections right now, three in the fall, three in the spring, and it's just been really exciting, and the kids are so engaged. Um, Dan teaches an innovations course, which I just want to point out, it's a great opportunity for kids to study what they want to. You know, he allows them to pick a field, he supports them, he guides them, he you know meets with them throughout but it's really self-driven, which I think is exciting for kids. The other course that really gets a lot of boost is the organic chem. We're one of the few schools that have mentioned this before that offer organic chemistry. Anybody going on in the fields of science, um, if you're going into pre-med, 
chemistry field, you have to take organic chem, and it's one of the harder sciences to take at the beginning. It's like that mental gymnastics. So I have a teacher that teaches it, extremely passionate, but kids come back and say, that was the most useful class I took in the science. Hmm. You know, go figure. So um, again, you know, you know the other ones, but it's those couple I just wanted to give a plug to. And you can see here just the activities going on. Um, the chemistry department does hot air balloons, so that's in the middle there. We had in the forensics class um, over on the far right, we did sketch artist. So um, someone was given a picture. We used our <laughs> admin <laughs> pictures, and they had to describe to somebody else who their suspect was. Um, the drawings weren't. <laughs> we'll need to work with Amy Collins a little bit in her department, I think. And they were doing search patterns out on the football field, looking for pennies. Um, I was surprised at how good they were, but they, they found all their pennies. Um, we had a crime scene. So just some things that are, that are happening. I mean, beyond our electives, kids have unbelievable opportunities after school. We have many clubs. Um, we have our Science National Honor Society with Dr. Thompson. There's 73 students currently members. She brings in guest speakers. Those students provide peer tutoring um, before and after school. She gets them out into the community. We, I'm gonna fly through this only because I know it's moving on. Um, Science Olympiad is run by Ken Wadman and Nate Largess in the physics. They um, have a competition in the springtime, so these students are meeting weekly, they're preparing. The Science <coughs> Olympiad um, covers all sciences, so it's not just a focus on one area. Um, we've got the Green Earth Club. So Chrissy Conley, the environmental teacher, she wants us to spread that environmental awareness, encourage sustainability. And last year she was out in the fields um, removing your invasive plants on the property. So we've got a science research club, which was um, wonderful when Emma Travasos came along. She was all for it, and she, that's the one where they compete at WPI in the spring. So she had students last year that were interested. She had two students that um, you know, went on, no, three students that went on to the state competition, sorry. Um, HOSA, which has been run by Lori Mott, which focuses on the health sciences. So again, she's bringing in um, guest speakers. Um, we had Dr. Medina who came in and gave up his time. Um, they look at projects, and then in the springtime, they also compete in some of those health fields. We have WISE, Women in Science, hosted by, uh, run by Maria Homburg. Um, again, guest speakers. <coughs> Last year, they wrote some, um, wrote and illustrated books for the K-2 second graders in our district. This year, we've had kids that want to compete in the Chemistry Olympiad, so Catherine Burkett offered to, you know, um, prep those students, and then I had a group of students that came to me and wanted to work on some science lessons that they hope to bring down to the um, middle schools and elementary, and they're called Adams. So, with all that going on, this doesn't get done without an incredible department. I always have to give them the biggest applaud because they are the most passionate group of people that I've ever worked with. They're here, they're here early, they're dedicated. Um, if you come to the building, you know that the science department is here by six o'clock. I mean, we've got a lot of people here early and they leave late. And they're passionate. They really, really are passionate people. 
So I thank them also for their incredible work. Anyone have any questions? <laughs> That was a fantastic uh, presentation, and like all of those clubs on top of the great things that are happening during the day, is amazing how many different opportunities the students have. It's fantastic. Thank you. Questions, comments? Karen? I don't have a question. I just want to say thank you. This is amazing. Um, and, you know, I just have to share that I have, a, a, my daughter was, a science major and I shared with um, Ms. Amimi, you know, her, um, some of her activities that she's done at college and it was just nice to see just how prepared she is and how passionate she is about science and so <coughs> it, it only comes from what she learned here so it's, it's just amazing and thank you for the pictures because oftentimes I get What'd you do today? How was school? <laughs> it was fine. And I, you know, nothing. So <laughs> I love to see what they do in class. It's great. It's great. Paul? I'll, I'll second that. I mean, I, my son is a, a science kid, I guess you'd say, and he's, he's, he's thrived here. And uh, I just appreciate all the work you folks have done. Um, I do have a question. I, this goes back years ago. There was a consultant that came and talked to us about education topics in general. And, and one of them was how we teach math and science, I guess especially math, and shouldn't they be connected? <clears throat> and I know in physics at least they do, to some extent, teach science, teach math, because they have to. And I know I've heard from some teachers that you know some of the things they're covering haven't been covered yet in math, so they, they have to teach it. And I, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that and if we would be better served by teaching them together more so that you know, you're applying the math in a way that Makes it more concrete. Definitely talk to the math department, and I know physics has shared with the math department what units they're on, so that they can either um, pre-cover those topics, and if it fits in their curriculum, it might not fit in the flow. So then we take on the ownership of maybe pre-teaching some of the math. But there <coughs> are conversations, but we could always do more conversations with the math department. I think we're all struggling with time to get our curriculum in. Yeah, I guess I'm not talking about you taking that on. I, I just mean as a philosophical. Discussion. Well, philosophically, I, mean, I definitely think they go hand in hand. There's a lot of math in chemistry. Right. Um, and I know there's a lot of math in our AP um, bio class. So they're seeing it. But they're definitely applying the math and the science that they're learning. Right. I don't know if I answered your question or... Uh, yeah, it I, it's just something I've been thinking about for a long time. And I, and I right. think it's a larger discussion, obviously. But, you know, and I don't know if it fits with the Massachusetts frameworks and all of that. But uh, it just seems worthy of exploration, I'd say. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, from a student side of that, I mean, taking AP Physics this year, where like we, Mr. Wadman, has to teach us a lot of like the calculus. I'm sure Sean's talked to you about it, but That's like where it's coming from, yeah. second day of <laughs> second day of school, we're learning how to take derivatives, whereas we don't get to that till like a month in in calculus. But I think the science department does a great job, kind of teaching that as opposed to just assuming it's known and I think it's just a way the timing works out that to take AP Physics C you'd need a calculus class before it but that's kind of impossible um, and I think they do a good job with it I, and they're always willing to do more whether it be Mr. Wadman who teaches AP Physics kind of staying after to go deeper into something or Mr. Um, McGrath who teaches Calc 
explaining something from physics with kind of a more calculus background. Like, I know I've gone to him with my physics problems before and been like, <laughs> Mr. Wadman <laughs> has showed us how to do this in physics, but how does it kind of apply or where does it come from? And he helps with that. So I think there's a lot of, it takes a lot of kind of student initiative, but I think kids taking AP Calc and AP Physics have that initiative. Well, that's what I'm getting at. Is that I, I, my, assump, my theory, I guess, would be that it would be easier to learn math if it was applied to physics. I mean, that's kind of where math comes from physics, so that makes sense. <laughs> I think it comes a lot from the project base and the hands-on learning yeah, that they're too. doing, too, where that's what you like to see the kids do, is to figure it out on their own. So that, that is very beneficial. I don't want to um, let go either. The, it was early in the presentation about the success of students with MCAS. I mean, that's um, you know significant. It, it, it's not to be taken lightly um, and just brushed over. That was early in the presentation, but that's a lot of work, a lot of concern. But it, that competency determination is made from it, and they can um, you know go on and, and take other pieces because they've been able to be successful, and that's. They've done an incredible yeah. job. They really work collaboratively, that group. So Yeah. So um, that's impressive. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I just have one more question. Yeah. Speaking about that in the in the co taught ELL class, mm -hmm. like that that was awesome, that visual. And I just I would just love to maybe eventually pick your brain on that a little bit because <laughs> it's been a that great is like a model pairing. right there. It's a great pairing. Okay. That biology teacher with our EL. Oh, um, yeah. teacher. She's great. That's great. Yeah. And they have to be able to work together, too. Right, you know, it's, right. And they gel. So the kids have been successful because of that. Yeah. Anything else? I'm jealous I had chemistry during COVID. That Halloween thing looks fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bummer for me not to do it this year, because that's one of my favorites. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thank you. Thank you very thank much. You. You're welcome. Digging into academics, we're going to talk about recommended graduation. Um, sure. So I, I'm very interested to see how um, Principal Bevan will top that presentation. Um, Do you have a whoosh bottle? At the December meeting, um, Sean presented to the committee some graduation requirement changes. Um, I did provide information in the packet for your review. Sean will. Um, review some of the, the recommended changes um, and answer any questions that you may have. So, unfortunately, I have no videos where things explode <laughs> or like there's no fire, um, but this is a very important change that we've been giving a great deal of thought to here at the high school for some time. Um, and this year, we really invested a great deal of time looking really closely at what our options are to improve our graduation requirements so that our children's experience coming through the high school um, is the best fit for them and prepares them best for college and career after they leave here, leave us here at uh, from Algonquin. So um, in your packet is an official recommendation from me in, in really memo form outlining uh, the change exactly in some dry terms and why the change is important. Um, the slides here I'll be sharing are, are identical to what we looked at uh, last month, but I will go through them just uh, by way of review. Um, just to orient you to what our current graduation requirements are, which have been in place for, I'm 
sorry, I don't know, but decades for some time now. Um, all students need to achieve 110 total credits, um, and then those credits need to be in a combination that is outlined here, of course. So all students need to have four classes of English, so each credit, each um, unit is uh, five credits is a full year course. Two and a half credits is a half year course. So you can see them all up here, and this is the current state of our graduation requirements. The change I'm proposing and proposed in the December meeting is to make an adjustment to the digital, digital literacy course, which is typically um, completed in our freshman year, and to make an adjustment in the that lower um, requirement, which is to make our applied arts um, um, requirement, which is uh, <coughs> applied arts or, or fine and performing arts. It can be completed by, or, or that's a requirement that can be met by either, um, and to make a change by eliminating the applied arts portion of that and reducing it entirely just to the fine and performing arts. So, and additionally, I'm sorry, I skipped over this because it's important. The digital literacy requirement would remain um, and be um, expanded to be uh, met by uh, another course that is another foundational course uh, that meets just a, a different set of student interests. And the reasons why these are important changes um, are first, and really I, I have them in three categories. One is that our students and staff have spent the last several years um, improving and um, and refining their skills in digital literacy more than in probably any um, any students who've come through. Some of that was by necessity during the pandemic, but also much of it was by design because as a strategic um, uh, measure, our school um, and our whole district from K to 12 have been incorporating digital literacy and computer science into all of our classes uh, and not just in a singular department. So from K to 12 in all departments, every teacher is looking at some way, in some way to incorporate digital literacy and computer science. And um, that started last year um, in, in staff meetings and PD sessions. This year continued with uh, the, um, our sharing out of a, what we call the DLCS toolbox, which is distributed to all of our staff members. And um, simply, shares, I'm sharing with you to let you know that our staff members are better equipped now to, to teach digital literacy such that making it a solo requirement in one department um, is not as necessary as it once was. Um, additionally, uh, as I think we all have experienced as students, um, students re respond to choice and they do better uh, in classes that they've chosen to attend um, and that this is an opportunity to expand choice for students and every opportunity I can find to give students more choice within reason and, and in ways that are healthy and aligned with our goals, um, we are going to do that. Um, the change for digital literacy to expand it to incorporate computer science, exploring <coughs> computer science would allow students to, if they have goals that in, are, are uh, aligned to more around computer science than digital literacy, it allows them to create a greater foundation to pursue those goals later on in their high school career. And additionally, uh, this is something that really speaks to, uh, to targeting, or, or not targeting isn't the right word, but, but creating a change that will, will incentivize students to, uh, to attend more fine and performing arts classes. So currently in our current graduation requirements, because it, it, the requirement for applied arts and uh, applied arts or fine, fine and performing arts can be met by attending or, or, or completing a class in either section. 
you have the potential of a student graduating from us after four years and having never attended a class where they make music, where they create any piece of art, they don't draw, they don't use clay, they, they, um, they do lots of many other things as you might have seen in, in our science department presentation, but um, that's something that we want to incentivize and really and really place a little bit of value on more than is, is currently, um, currently reflected in our graduation requirements. Um, in order to, to understand this change between digital literacy and computer science, I outlined here the difference. Um, they are two very different courses, even though there's about, a, I would just say, about a 15% overlap. Uh, if you were to create a Venn diagram, there are things in here specifically about students um, and their digital footprint that we think are important that all freshmen have. But from there, some of the changes are, are listed here. In digital literacy and computer science, that's the current course that is the only course that is required for freshmen. Um, not the only course that's required for freshmen. It's the course listed on, um, on that graduation requirement that we're speaking about that there's no alternative to that provides a broad introduction to a variety of technological technolo technology t topics and exposure to uh, various digital literacy concepts and applications. And on the right-hand side, the exploring computer science does many of those things, but, uh, but also, or in addition, or in a, in a deeper sense, provides a greater conceptual foundation for students who might want to pursue the pursue computer science. And some of that work, by the way, on the right-hand side, is analog work. It's work that they're doing pen, uh, pencil and paper. Um, it might be work that they're doing. They're reading something. They're reading a hard copy of a book and text and talking about it. But it's creating the, the kind of conceptual underpinnings for students that um, will lead to success in computer science. Um, and so that is the overview of the work we did uh, over the course of the And just to add, I'm sorry, let me interrupt myself here. I'm going back. I incorporated this into the recommendation, but I don't think I mentioned it last time, and I, or if I did, I, I did not highlight it closely. Um, in looking at this work and, and, and generating this as a, as a potential proposal, I ran it by and presented it to our school council, including uh, Ben's on our, uh, no, Ben's not on school council. We talked about it at the student advisory council with the school, uh, Algonquin school council, the APTO, um, and pretty much anybody I, who I could find to hear about this course and give me feedback on, on how these changes might, might um, be, um, impact our students is we got that feedback that's incorporated into these changes and those groups all have uh, endorsed this change. Okay. Um, questions? Uh, can I, uh, one, one thing. Um, I think it's just a shift. It, it's not really, can you just explain again it's, that the applied arts credits are being eliminated there, but but just a reminder for people from last time, like it doesn't sure. mean people won't be taking them. That's They're right. just covered other places. It's That's not, exactly right. Yeah, yeah so we, I, I think everyone understands we have perhaps the strongest applied arts and technology department in any school in central Massachusetts, I wouldn't put ours up against anyone's. And um, you see that reflected in not lots of ways, and sometimes uh, you see it reflected in your own children's work, but, or you might see it in the strength of our DECA program. Um, that affords us, in some ways, the ability to have such a strong, and that's a primarily an electives um, department. That's where nutrition is, and, like, and uh, uh, early childhood edu education, wood, wood technology, video production, in addition to all of our many business courses. Right. 
So a student could very easily, in that bottom row that's grayed out here where it says electives, there's still 27 and a half credits remaining for them to, to spend, if you were, or if you will, to in many other ways that could include all those things. And before you would get to a change where, um, where final performing arts is the solo requirement here for, for freshmen, um, before they graduate in four years, students will absolutely have taken an, a digital literacy or computer science, which is an applied arts course, and an economics class, which is also an applied arts course. So before you, even if this, uh, this proposal goes through, which I hope it does, all students will have 5.0 credits in the applied arts, having to, and that could mean that they never take another one, they're already at five credits, um, and 2.5 credits of does that you. answer your question? Yep. Sorry, yeah. Sorry. I just wanted to make that clear to anyone watching. Or That's right. That yeah. There's still it's a not great an elimination. Deal of invested yeah. in the applied arts and reflecting our, okay. our community investment. Yeah, very strong. The marketing, sub, yeah, all that stuff. Um, so we're looking for a vote tonight, but so we can have discussion and then a vote. Uh, Kathleen? Good evening. Hi. Thank you for that. Um, I wanted to ask is 110 a cap? That's our cap. Yeah. Your okay. Each school has a different number, and some use different versions of credits. It's it's not exactly apples to oranges. <clears throat> school and 110 is pretty typical. Yeah, of course. I love seeing that the fine arts is getting its place, and of course, I would love to lobby for more um, to actually be a full year. Um, one of the things that we see in and I know that we're responsible for K to 12, whether they're here till 18 or 22. But when I look at the long range investment, the return on investment of education, the way that people grow old with hobbies um, is really imperative. Um, and one of the things I think is fascinating is that if you trained in music and you'd start to lose your hearing later in life, which is typical because we're outliving our hearing, if you had music training, you actually hear better than somebody else with equal hearing loss who didn't have music training. And the difference is significant because hearing loss alone is, can cause uh, a 40% increase in the risk for dementia. So when I look at what is that long range um, benefit of boosting that to a full year, I mean, that's not gonna give them the protection for the musicians that are training um, for a full year, but I also think how do you spend your time um, and hobbies is really, really key in hobbies that create social affiliation. Um, if you've read Vivek Murthy's book, um, Our Surgeon General, on the public health crisis of loneliness, it's these type of activities that bring us together. And so beyond the preparation for vocation is how do we really instill avocation as a high value? So to that degree, I would like to just catalyze a conversation about increasing that to a year, um, not at the expense of anything else, but really seeing the, the long-range return on investment of that kind of a choice. Yeah. I do want to go back on something I said when you said, is it 110 a cap? That's the minimum, I think. It was when you said cap, yeah, I was hearing, I was hearing minimum or thinking minimum. So every student needs 110 credits, but mm -hmm. in fact, most of our students far exceed 110 credits. Um, so it's not a cap, in fact, it's the minimum. Okay. That makes sense. And so what I love is that they could take something in art and really explore it, as you said, which you spoke to beautifully, as well as something in music, which both spurn um, 
hobbies that um, really support somebody aging well, and I think that's something that we want to see in our communities. That's an investment um, in education that is just magnificent in its return. Yeah, and any change, as you might imagine, any increase in the fine and performing arts or any anywhere on that right-hand column except for the bottom electives would come at the expense of the electives, but many of those will be elective courses. So I do think you know, this will be something that we would monitor closely, see how students are responding, get mm -hmm. feedback, um, and then um, see if it's a good fit for us for next year and whether or not further changes are, uh, are necessity, uh, or necessity would be something and I see whether that will have any stick. Yeah, and I'd also I think I think both of my sons got through Ogunk. No, one was in band. The other one did get through without taking any arts or band. So, and I always that always struck me as as something he missed. So I think this is at least a step in the right direction for students to have those experiences, and then. Hopefully, as they said in the science thing, spark, you know, those teachers spark an interest to, to continue on with more electives and more parts. So I, I appreciate that that's separated out now. Yeah, and I do also want to put in a plug for our really wonderful fine performing arts staff as much as our applied arts really does have a, a wide variety and a, a wonderful portfolio of <laughs> electives offerings. Our fine performing arts staff are really wonderful as well. He took, uh, yeah, improv which was oh, perfect for him, so there we go. Right, right. <laughs> and, to... and our fine and performing arts <coughs> classes include very much beginner courses, beginning guitar, um, beginning art courses, and, and right up to much more sophisticated ensemble um, music courses. Yes. Would this change apply starting with the incoming freshman class? Or... Uh, yes, Ben, thank you for asking. Yes, they would start with the incoming freshman seniors. class and then grow <laughs> with that class, yes. It would not be retroactive to... Actually, the, Ben, you're going to have to start over. <laughs> <laughs> Other questions, Matthew? Um, I guess I didn't notice this till now. So I was trying to figure out what was missing. So foreign language is not a requirement for graduation. That's correct. Is there anything else that's missing other than foreign language as part of our curriculum? Um, just, foreign language is not... You're, you're exactly caught it. Um, most of our students take at least two years of foreign language. It's, uh, it's kind of the, the most, most typical. And when I say 90, I don't know what the number is, but it's 95% or more maybe even. Um, however, it's not reflected in our requirements that goes back many years. Um, I think that would be another area we should begin looking at. Um, foreign languages are so important, have always been, and I think in our global economy are, is increasingly important. Um, we probably should examine. I, I don't think a, a school's graduation requirements should be ever evolving every year. Should I do think there's some stability to it, but we want to make sure every student who's coming through us in our school graduates with a education that's reflective of the needs of being successful, that they need to be successful um, in college and career. So that's, just that's, observation. that's an interesting comment you just made, which was, you think 95% of the students have two years of foreign language? What percentage today of students have fine art, fine, fine performing arts? Uh, from our school? Yeah. Um, a high percentage. I don't know what number that is, but I can probably 
produce that for you. It's interesting because we're making a we're, you're proposing a change because people are suggesting that we want to make ensure that people have mm -hmm. that opportunity. But it sounds to me like they're already doing it. Yeah, in a lot of ways, some of these this change to the fine and performing arts is in, in so, to some degree reflective of what our current practice is and what students are typically leaving us with. But typical and 100% isn't, isn't the same. And so we, this would ensure that someone, um, like Mr. Shea was explaining, we wouldn't have a student leaving us having you know, not ever stepped foot in an art class. So um, I do. I do think, same with foreign, foreign languages, we have what's typical, and then what we have is our requirements um, should reflect what we think is the is <coughs> totally necessary. And I think there's um, other drivers about what students take. So that's our requirements, but then students looking to um, go to higher education, most higher education have their own requirements, which is foreign language, is, uh, hence why my guess is a lot of students take that. Or, that's right. Uh, like mathematics is only three years, I believe. Three years, but, yeah. but most students take four because of uh, the college requirements and so on. So, I and a, a good yardstick for that are, are the requirements UMass uh, has has produced. And I, off the top of my head, um, they I think they do have foreign language requirements. So most of our students um, would meet that requirement, and that would be what our guidance yeah. department members are are, at, are advising. There's more work to be done, and I think this is a, a change that is a step in the right direction, but I do think we want to keep examining whether or not our graduation requirements are rigorous enough and whether or not they um, ensure that every student leaves our school fully prepared. Kathleen? Um, I thought that was a great point to my new member. I look forward to meeting you <laughs> later. Um, I've asked for those numbers before about involvement in the fine arts, and I'd be grateful Sure. I thought you did last time you, you provided us a lot of statistics. I'm just wondering if we, um, I don't know if those were in there. <coughs> I, had, I, can't, I can have yeah. them, yeah. Sure. My guidance department has them pretty handy. Yeah. Um, they, I think what we will find out is we, large, large percentages of students do take one or more or many classes. Many, many of our students take two years of foreign language, um, and I can produce those, or we can come back to that, sure. So we're looking for a vote tonight on this, um, so um, the school can take direction about whether we're moving forward with these or, or not. I, I think it has to be communicated to the incoming eighth grade pretty soon, so um, I guess I'd be looking for a, a motion, and then we can discuss the motion. I'll make a motion that we accept the proposed changes um, for the graduation requirements as presented tonight. <coughs> Motion by Karen. Do we have a second? Second. Um, second by Kathleen. Um, further discussion? Chris, did you have something you wanted to add? No, I was just going to make a comment related to, I guess, um, the foreign language requirement, which would be. Um, Do, do you find that um, you get requests to waive any of the graduation requirements for students that are having difficulty meeting the 110 standard? Um, the 110 is usually not the barrier. Um, and one of the, what I mean is one of these specific ones. One of these ones. specific ones. I've not, since I've been here as the principal at Algonquin, 
in my former school where we did have the foreign language requirement, which was two years there, the foreign language requirement, I, I did, I, I, I'd have a few waivers each year for students with language-based disabilities, and we would, we would, I would sign off on those, and they could, that, I, we would waive that requirement for students in that case, and it was mm -hmm. a very low number each year, but for those students, that was a real need. So I guess what I would say is my concern with adding a foreign language requirement would be specifically for those students. I wouldn't necessarily want those students to have to reach out to get the um, blessing of the administration to waive those requirements. Um, whereas I think we have more infrastructure in place to support students that have um, specific learning disabilities with the requirements that we have here. That's just a general comment. We have a motion on the table. Any, any other discussion? Okay, so all in favor of the uh, recommended changes? And that's unanimous, so that passes. Thank you, everyone. <clears throat> so can I just make a quick comment? So I just want to thank Sean and his leadership. I think it, this required a lot of navigation of different departments, a lot of great conversation. And I think ultimately what I see as a great opportunity is really student advocacy and student choice where at one point we were asking all students to take this particular course. Now we're providing some advocacy and choice of students to be able to go in a direction that they wouldn't have been able to um, in prior years. So I think that's a, a, a good shift in the right direction. Thank you, I'm excited about it, yeah. And I will report back and make sure I let you know how it's going. Thank you. And, um, so next up is the superintendent's report. And Principal Bevan will give the principal's update. <laughs> sure, all right, I will hand it off to myself here. All right, <laughs> um, Last night we had a really exciting event here at the high school and some of you were here to, to enjoy it. And I made mention of this award before so I won't spend too much time, but last night was our um, unveiling of the National Unified Champions banner, um, which will hang in our gym. Um, and we had an event at halftime um, of a big basketball game between us and Shrewsbury, a game we won. And at halftime, we had many of our unified uh, champion uh, students attend and unified sports without over explaining, if you're not familiar, is um, a sports program that is uh, aligned through Special Olympics where students with um, disabilities play alongside students with, without disabilities in all, all kinds of sports. And we have one of the strongest unified programs uh, around, and I've said this before, but at my former school, I came here, when I was principal at my former school, I came here to learn about unified so I could bring it back to that school, and, that, and, it, and I launched it there because of what I had seen and the strength of that, this program here, and the program I launched there remains. Um, and we were a unified champion school as well there after that. Um, so it's a banner we win. Uh, we it, you get it four years, and it's based on uh, meeting 10 criteria of excellence of your program and last night it was just a wonderful celebration that had many different features it was terrific um, just a heads up and part of this is just promoting an event I'm very excited about but also to let you know something we are doing based on some of the data we have about how students are struggling with uh, mental health and uh, to respond to as, as uh, Superintendent Martino said student voice um, two students two of our senior students Sadie Candela Katie, Sadie Candela and Sara Medina had uh, talked to me at the end of the summer, beginning of the school year, and said we'd like to do something where we, we provide a um, you know, 
voice to students about or, or support for students about their mental health, but specific to athletes who's, who I think gain the benefits, the, the mental health benefits of athletics, but also have a lot of the challenges of time management, of performance anxiety, a diet of, of many things. And so we have a speaker coming in on February 9th, and she will be doing a panel discussion with some of our student athletes that will just be for athletes. We're canceling practices that day. And the, the teams that can uh, could have moved games or practices um, uh, could not have done that um, are, are still practicing, but most of our teams will be there, and that will be their practice for today, the day, and there will be a virtual night in the evening. Dr. O'Brien comes to us from uh, Boston Children's, and she also is a professor at, uh, an assistant professor at Harvard University, where she played ice hockey and was a national champion ice hockey player. Um, Can I ask a question? On yeah, that? sure. Um, is that just for high school students? That's just for high school students currently, except the virtual parent will be open to anyone who cares to. The, uh, the in-person session will be directly after school, so students don't have to leave and go home and come back. Um, it really is open just to the high schoolers for the student session. The parent session is open to <coughs> not only anyone here in our community, but the link would be open to anyone. Uh, my goal is that we make an event like this something we repeat every year, that we take time out of our school year and our athletics year to attend to student athletes' mental health and to incorporate that in kind of a spiraled kind of way where our coaches are getting the kind of information and training and understanding that they need to support their students. Um, I do want to let make sure I, I recognize that Be Well Northborough has kindly funded this, uh, are kindly funding this event. They uh, funded an event uh, for us um, on marijuana um, and teen marijuana addiction and all their wonderful partners here. Let you know how that goes. I have high hopes for it. And then um, this is something that happened in this in the fall, and it was probably pretty. It was not widely reported, but it has changed some of how we do business here at the high school. And I just want to make sure the, uh, the committee is aware and maybe walk you through what it looks like. Um, so, in October of 2022, Massachusetts passed uh, an act addressing barriers to care for mental health, which was a sweeping and very lengthy uh, series of changes that impacted lots of diff different um, uh, areas of the Commonwealth and different agencies and, and in there was a pretty significant change to how schools use discipline or discipline certain assigned consequences to uh, students who, um, who violate their school's handbook rules. It was a major shift that we learned about with about a week's notice um, and had to be implemented on November 8th with almost no time to prepare. Um, and a lot of schools were scrambling and we got a lot of really good advice from our, um, our attorney and, and other principals relied on each other to just help navigate this. And I'm happy to say I think we got to a very good place very quickly and I'm gonna just walk you through what that looks like. In general terms, the, the requirement um, limits schools' ability to, uh, to or, or encourages, or requires, in fact, uh, schools to seek alternatives to outside suspension with the presumption that, or the kind of the basic understanding that outside suspensions are really not healthy and not productive and not educationally productive or good for the student who's being outside suspended and when they return from school they're behind, they, get, they have a harder time catching back up and there's lots of reasons why outside suspensions are not all that um, helpful for students who are getting outside suspended. 
At the same time, I think you understand students who get outside suspended got outside suspended for reasons that are certainly under, understandable why schools have been using that tool for decades and decades. Um, the requirement, all the, the, we are now required additionally, in, in, in addition to seeking alternatives, but to document the use and results of the alternatives we are trying uh, in, instead of outside suspension. And there are exceptions, however. So this is not to say that we cannot use the outside suspensions ever again. They still happen. They just happen much, much lower rate. Um, and things that used to be outside suspendable are not no longer, and we're using different uh, methods that I'll talk you talk to you about in a moment. <coughs> the alternative, uh, the exceptions include when an alter when when the alternatives are unsuitable or counterproductive. That's pretty broad language that uh, schools can use to their benefit when really uh, um, outside suspension is the best option. Um, but the suspensions involving weapons, drugs, assaults of staff, school staff, or felony charges remain very, you know, very much remain suspendable, and, and we would be using suspension in those instances very likely here at Anon. Um, I would say in broad, broad terms that the emphasis of this law is to, is to use this as an a, a disciplinary event as an opportunity to repair harm uh, or perceived harm a student might be, have done to someone else or to their school environment and to improve that behavior rather than, and, and what they're reducing here is reducing the emphasis on punishment and using discipline as a form of punishment. Um, and that's, that really is a shift in thinking for a lot of schools. I think here at our school and under my leadership, it's not a, hum, not a huge change because even for students who do things very much suspendable, those are opportunities to redirect a student and to get them to understand that their behavior has consequences and to find ways to redirect that behavior. So I will walk you through like just a one singular potential, you know, very uh, vague kind of not a lot of details here, but um, I'll talk to you about what it might look like if this were to happen here at Algonquin now under this current change. So if the handbook violation were that a student were under the influence of alcohol <coughs> at a school event, um, and that, you know, that does happen from time to time in a high school environment, um, at a dance, at a, a, a football game or, or something, that, that, that has happened. Um, typically, and I'm going back you know, years and years, a, a, a pretty typical suspension length for that would be three to five days of outside suspension. Um, depending on a lot of factors. Uh, a lot of it depends on what that student's disciplinary history is before that event, how they respond in the event. Um, lots of, there's lots of factors that might uh, impact the length of that suspension, but three to five days would be pretty typical, and um, there's no industry standard, but if there was one, that would be pretty close to it. Um, now, there would be lots of options to consider, and I have a list here on the right, and I'll talk you through in my next slide what a potential actual singular um, way to process this might look like. Um, we would meet as a team, my assistant principals and I, and talk through what are ways we can redirect this behavior, how can we avoid an outside suspension and still have a student reflecting on their choice and restoring and repairing the harm that they've done to the trust we have in them. Um, so here are some options. We've now developed a Saturday school, which is exactly what it sounds like. And I know in your brain you're thinking, is that the breakfast club? And it's pretty much the breakfast club. So without all the crazy things that happen. In the um, it is a Saturday school and students do not want to miss their set. They do not, do not want to be here at school on Saturday and they prefer an outside suspension a lot of ways. Um, and then the next bullet one is one we're relying heavily on and we've already used quite a bit is to have students uh, do something that gives back to our school community. 
Um, they might clean out a school storage locker. They might inventory, we've had students inventory athletics gear, and this is happening either on a Saturday or during a, you know, a school break like April break. Um, we are increasingly relying on the attraction of social events like our big dances and our other things that are, are heavily social because that, that is something that students value heavily and probably even more than missing a full school day. Um, loss of athletics is also part of, <coughs> is part of the equation more than it's ever been. Um, and then to some degree, we've also even try, been using where, um, instances where we're um, tracking a student's attendance and their discipline throughout their school day and asking teachers for feedback and using those as like almost granular uh, um, uh, pieces of evidence to redirect that student's behavior, which students don't enjoy, I, I can, you can imagine, but also we're just looking for them to, uh, to bring their behavior up to the standard that, uh, that most other students can achieve without trouble. So in an instance like this, I would say if a student um, in some event soon were to do what's listed there under the influence of alcohol at a school event, what might ultimately come about is what's there in red is we'd have an investigation and hearing, conclude that a violation of the handbook occurred, and then three full, full school days, full not school days, excuse me, full days of community service, inventorying athletic year over, over the April break. That's highly specific, but that would be very likely as we're nearing February and April break, we look at those if a student gets themselves into a suspendable um, trouble, that would be something we would be looking at. We would, if it was an upperclassman, we might be looking at like the loss of prom with the ability to earn it back if they string together a month of, you know, good behavior. So. Um, we're always looking for ways to incentivize students to just simply behave in the ways we would like them to. And I'm a big believer in pulling, pulling back something very attractive like prom with the ability for a student to then do just simply the things that we want to reward them with and then potentially have them have that um, experience back. And then there would be a re-entry meeting and a return to school. Um, but in this case, since they weren't ever out of school suspended, that return to school really is just that they were never uh, exited from school. There might be a processing of how did we get here? How can we avoid getting here in the future? Are there any questions? Yeah, John. Are you asking, are you telling us this? Are you? Uh, yeah, sorry, I'm not, I'm, not, um, I'm just alerting you to, this is a pretty, I, for, for our offices, it's a pretty big change. Um, and probably in the history of our school in Massachusetts school, it signifies a pretty large change for the school mm -hmm. when we interact with those families. This is just by way of like letting you know. May I make a comment? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, or as a, I guess it's a question first. Is there an honor code that's applied to athletics that they are separate from this? Because in my opinion, it should be standard yeah. that if a person that's on an on athletic team is caught under the influence of alcohol, it should be automatic that they're not allowed to participate for some duration on that particular team, period, end of story. Sure. And I appreciate that goes against what yeah, we're talking yeah. about here, but there has to be some sort of repercussions, in my opinion. So, so I, there's I very much, and this is a, uh, a topic that all administrators are well, uh, are well aware of and, and have worked through a lot. The MIA has a chemical health policy that any student who violates the chemical health policy loses 25% of their um, next uh, contests, so the next four games or, the, or whatever. 
um, for a first offense. A second offense, I think it goes to okay. 60%. So that's in addition to this. That would be in addition to this, and that is beyond our control. There would be no changes. We would do a hearing, and if our conclusion was a student had violated our handbook policy by being under the influence of alcohol, the MIA suspension would also kick in, and that absolutely would happen. Some teams may have their own um, you know, repercussions, so if a student's a captain, there might be the natural consequence of losing their captaincy. That's something we navigate on a case-by-case -case basis. But I wouldn't say there's an honor code. In fact, MIA is very clear. This is, rule's been in place for 12 or 14 years, and it's frankly very difficult to apply um, formally and fairly, but it's one that's feel, felt very intensely by the students who lose a quarter of their senior fill-in-the-blank season basketball, baseball. Thank you. Sure, and I would say in terms of voting, eventually the handbook comes to us for approval, so any, any changes in the um, discipline code, discipline, will be in the handbook, and that'll be up for us to um, review and approve in probably May or June or something like that. Yeah. But There's no. potential, I'm sorry, Mr. Cravino. There's the potential that this might not, this is so deep in the practice of how we uh, apply what is under the, um, you know, the discipline code that it might not be reflected, but oh. I will make sure that there's nothing that, um, that uh, is not reflected mm -hmm. here or, or uh, yes. inconsistent with what's here. Um, no, absolutely. I think, um, first of all, I'd like to um, just say that um, I'm gonna preface what I wanna say here by stating that you're doing this to comply with the law. Yes. Right. Now, personally, <coughs> I'm not a huge fan of this. Um, it is the law, but um, my concern in general sense is, and I can kind of see where they're coming from. So if you have a student that is excessively tardy or excessively absent from the school, the last thing you want to do is reward them with an out-of-school suspension. <laughs> so I think that's where a lot of this comes from. But my, my general concern is I understand where this comes from, especially when you're dealing with younger students. Um, and this is just more of a soapbox commentary. And that is that we are trying to make sure that we are um, developing citizens that have respect for rules and understanding that breaking rules in a civilized society has consequences. And um, I've always felt that schools have kind of a soft touch policy anyway. You're trying to really encourage uh, the right behavior uh, from students, which is what you're looking for. Uh, my concern, and it really isn't the concern of the schools as much, but my concern is that when these students, um, and I would be interested in hearing about recidivism, so when you're, when you're talking about um, these types of punishments, how many students are going on to reoffend? because it's not really a punishment, it's more of a, um, think about what you did, how did it affect people. Um, I understand where that's coming from. My concern is that um, this is gonna hit some students pretty hard when they get out into the real world and there's no, you know, when you get pulled, you know, I'm a driver's ed instructor, when you're pulled over um, and issued a ticket, there's no explanation as to why you get the ticket and you have to deal with it. There isn't, well, why were you speeding? And, um, well, why was your foot down so hard on the gas pedal? So. Um, again, my point is simply that I totally understand that we're doing this to comply with the law, but I personally don't think this is necessarily the best uh, discipline system that we should have going forward. That's just a okay. general comment. Um, I don't think this 
drastically changes the practices at Algonquin Regional High School. I think if you look at the genesis of the law, there are many school districts that significantly choose out-of-school suspension. Um, if you look at schools where there's a high minority population, socioeconomic, they use this as, a, as their primary disciplinary mechanism. It's to make sure that um, all districts across the common, Commonwealth look at alternatives to suspension, and when suspension is appropriate, suspend. So I don't think this change in law is necessarily directed at an Algonquin Regional High School. It does have some implications, but just having observed Sean and prior leadership administer the disciplinary code, I don't see this as a significant change to the current practice here in our district. Yeah, just to be clear, we, at this point, halfway through the year, Monday is the first day of semester two. I don't think we're into double digits of suspension days for all of our students in total. And so, um, and that's not because we suddenly are soft on student misbehaviors. That would have been true if this law didn't come through. Um, but I will say when we get what is a pretty conventional um, misbehavior that had like a, you know, an easy kind of go-to punishment that conformed with what we had done for 20 years, now we're coming back and saying, how do we, we're now required to come at this a little bit differently, what might it look like? And we have the luxury of not suspending a lot, not having a lot of suspendable behaviors, so we can take our time and have those conversations. But yeah, it's fair to fair to worry that like it will suddenly signal a lowering of standards, and we want to monitor for that. But I think it's also important to note that this this law is pre-K through 12, mm -hmm. so our middle schools, elementary schools, also have to adhere to um, these new disciplinary requirements. Um, so it's it's a common you know. A, commonality that all schools across the Commonwealth now have and I think we we have excellent legal counsel um, helped us navigate um, learning about this and I think all of our principals pre-k through 12 have done a nice job trying to make sure we are adhering to the new requirements speaking of that pre-k to 8 I guess the question is not just for the high school but because it, it is the district's done work on you know collaborative problem solving and restorative practice you know training because that kind of gets in it but you can't like you need support and understanding and learning that. right like most um changes in requirements and laws you're not always given notice notice <laughs> so i think we do have work to do in terms of you know social justice and restorative practices and mm -hmm. you know working with our know surrounding districts around what does that look like um, how do we you know obviously we are in the business of educating students and making sure that we know students are going to make bad decisions how do we help students when they make poor choices learn um, understand the severity of a choice they've made and then move on and make sure that they don't repeat those mistakes so there's a lot of yeah. and restore their their actions with the community members correct. that were impacted right. yeah Okay. I, I just will make one last comment. This is a very um, public measure too. So oftentimes you'll have a situation at a school where another student is impacted or a group of students are impacted. And many parents want to see justice. And oftentimes those parents will, will want Principal Bevan to suspend. Um, 
So I think part of this is community education around what this law is, what we can and can't do, and why what you may think as a parent the consequence should be that might not be aligned to what we're required to do. So some of this is education um, with our educators in classrooms, with our parents in the community, um, and again, we have work to do in this area. Yeah, but I'll just say as a parent, I love that punishment. Instead of them being at home for three days doing nothing, <laughs> go do some community service and earn back the right to go to the prom. Like, I, I don't, I think that's good, personally. I, I agree with Karen. I, I like this approach, um, and I commend you for coming up with it so quickly. Um, I, I wouldn't mind hearing more details on the earn back area, though. I mean, I'm trying to envision how that would work. I mean, if you show up under the influence at a school event, how do you earn that back? I mean, short of not showing up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me think. Just off the top of my head, I can remember, and this preceded this. Uh, so I was structuring some of our disciplines, similar in kind of concept to this. We had some students make some unwise choices last year uh, around this time, and um, they had, I can't recall, or it was, uh, maybe it might actually have been after prom, and they were coming up on senior week. Um, and so the ability to attend senior events really hinged on their completion of the community service, their you know, behavior in school to, to earn back the ability to attend the senior week event. So you know, these are things lots of principals have used to like, they, we want to see students attend these events. We want to see them there. We want to enjoy those events with them. Um, but you gain a great deal of leverage over a student who might be for proclivity to misbehave and saying, you know, that dance that you have been planning on attending for a long time, you can't attend until you do the following things um, for three weeks between now and then. And that's all we're looking for, attend every class, no class costs, no misbehaviors, no, no nothing. So it might not be, uh, Mr. Desmond aligned exactly like we don't have a huge number of frequencies of students arriving intoxicated to events, but you broaden the umbrella and say all behaviors count now and you've got to earn it back. Um, it wasn't a really specific example. But I mean, I would just add that you, you've created, you know, sitting down with students, a letter of expectation. Um, and it's been a conversation with a student. If you meet all these expectations and you are a good citizen of Algonquin Regional High School, then you can earn back X, Y, and Z. And that is something that Principal Bevan has used with, with a number of students, and it's worked well um, when we have time. So it's when something happens and then the dance yes. is the next right. day. Yeah. So, yeah. But, I, you know, a week later. Yeah. Without you giving a lot of details, I can think of another <coughs> one in the recent past where a student did, did something that was very, would have been in a previous um, iteration, a two-day suspension. And we said, we're going to give you a month where after two weeks, uh, if you don't do the following very basic things that we're really happy for you to do every day and be successful and get all your work in and not class cut or whatever, we'll at the end of the first two weeks, we'll take one of those days of suspension out. We'll have held it in advance and pull it away, but you still got two more weeks to, to complete you know, strong academic performance, attendance, you name it. And if you do that and, and you do that successfully and we're getting feedback on the daily from teachers, we'll pull that second day away that we held in advance. So now you have had two days of suspension in concept, kind of as leverage over a student, and in two increments had gotten a month of what for that student was sensational behavior, but is simply the kind of behavior we want to see from 
Like that would be the kind of thing we were doing in the last couple of years and would conform and, and meet this law. So it's not a major shift for us, but I think the optics in our community might be if you have students who might in a spectacular kind of way be intoxicated at an event and might be at school on Monday, that would look very different than it did even last year. And so now this will be a bit of a, a, bit of a change. I think we have one more question, mm -hmm. Kathleen. Sorry. Who's the poor bloke that's over it, giving up their April <laughs> <laughs> And how do we um, yeah. balance that? Sacrifice. Um, we had three days of after-school <coughs> detention, and uh, after-school detention, we basically reduced it down to I think two days a week, and took the the kind of the hourly pay that we pay somebody to do after-school detention three days a week, and dedicated it to two Saturdays uh, a, a month. And we have a staff member who does that. They come in, they take attendance, and kind of walk through what the expectations are. And I think if you needed other ideas, doing um, service at the senior center mm -hmm. might also be something very, very helpful um, and community-based. Yeah, yeah, we're always looking for ideas. I, we I have like a Google Doc of the things that need to get done around around the building and can be done and contribute back to our community. Ideally, we're aligning whatever the misbehavior was with something that aligns as tightly as possible and is as directly as possible to the behavior. Is that the end of your That's report? Okay. Is, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. We also um, finalized our bell schedule, which uh, in many schools is, is and, and it has been a conversation in our school for, for quite some time, and I'm just happy to share the results of the change. So um, if you're a really astute observer and have studied our current bell schedule very closely, you will notice some differences, but I will walk you through them anyway. Um, so. Our current bell schedule has very quickly, to my mind, gained a lot of uh, traction in our school. I did a lot of surveying of students and of staff. Uh, most lately in December, we did a school-wide survey of students and got exactly a sense for what they're responding to about our current bell schedule, which is very different than the <coughs> schedule we've tried um, in previous years, which were all Monday through Friday bell schedules. The schedule we landed upon is not some wildly innovative bell schedule. It's probably similar to about a quarter or a third of the schools similar to ours. So it's not you know, a wild innovation. It is a very stable bell schedule where it rotates. All seven classes rotate in, you know, we call it a full rotation, and one class drops each day. The things that remain in next year's bell schedule are that the full rotation remains. It actually only it goes in a, the opposite direction, so teachers felt very there was kind of a lengthy conversation. As principal, I don't feel strongly which direction it rotates. And what I mean by that is day A goes A through F, and then G drops, and then day B, B, C, D, E, e um, and on and on. Whereas our current schedule, the first block of that second day would be uh, the last block that didn't meet the first day. So uh, the first day, the first class of the second day in that colorful column would be G, A, B, C, D. So it's worry with so many details here, but that is something our staff was really interested in, in pursuing. Um, one drop block each day does not change either, and what is changing is that Titan Day, which is our static fixed Monday, is just not working. Um, our staff is not, um, just does not see the benefits of it that they anticipated, and they were the one, they were really proponents of it, as was I. I thought they would deliver more benefits than it has. I don't think it's impeding learning. I just think it's not delivering the, same, the benefits that are worth the 
kind of the um, how dysregulating it can be often. And then uh, the long block, which is currently our third block, is um, is not one that is is delivering the benefits we anticipated either. And so what that looks like, I'll kind of show you. Um, and then there's this, oh, and then naming of days. So that's a bit of a cosmetic change. So the way we have days that are named by numbers and the blocks by letters, um, now we are aligning the names of the days to the first period that meets on that day. Um, and then you'll notice on the left-hand side, the class lengths are equally distributed. That's a very dense amount of information, but <laughs> I think it's about 90% of what our current schedule is, which is generally agreeable to a very large number of our students and staff, and it takes the things that they were not crazy about and, and alters them. So I'll just state one um, point around the visual on the screen is that this represents a lot of input and feedback from faculty and staff and students, a lot of great conversation. There is no such thing as a perfect schedule. Um, and I think this schedule that um, Principal Bevan is shifting to is not his schedule, but rather reflective of a conversation with faculty and staff and students to actually improve what currently exists today. So I think a lot of conversation and discussion to get to this point. And I would also state that um, what weighed heavy um, on some of these changes is input from students. Um, you know, there was a lot of great student input and feedback um, to make some changes that I think will really help us move forward next year. Yes, and I will close by saying, and I have one last thing before, uh, after I get to that, but I will just in general terms indicate that I do think we need a year or a year and a half of this schedule to finally see the benefits that it could provide. I don't know that it, um, it's healthy or, or, or it's really anybody's preference to continue to examine a schedule and be in a perpetually uh, perpetually looking at this. I think we need to see how it goes for a couple of years and then um, see if any changes are ne necessary after that time. Um, this schedule delivers some efficiencies of time that we would be uh, overshooting. It would result in more uh, instructional and more time on learning by uh, DESE's definition than we're required to uh, by about six and a half hours over the course of a year. So it allows us to as a minor tiny change going into the year, look at ways to redistribute some time, maybe extend some passing times, maybe extend some lunch, or maybe even have um, some 20-minute 20, 20 blocks here and there in the year where we can provide students with an opportunity to attend an activities fair, uh, have some type of musical interlude in the day. There's lots of ways we are looking at how to try it, how to do that, and we will be doing some piloting of those um, <coughs> surplus time opportunities in quarter three and quarter four. Yeah. Just one question. Is Titan Day an A day? What, how's Titan Day different? Titan Day, if you look closely, an A day drops G block there. Uh, and uh, gotcha. the alternate day, which is what we call Titan Day today, meets every class. Every day, yeah. Yep. Gotcha. And the classes are shorter and they're like 45 minutes, yeah. Um, so we would use the alternate day, I would anticipate, like the first day of every quarter. Right. Or the exactly. first day of semester two or the first three days of school we're still yep. finding our, our seed legs. Um, you know, that kind of thing. Yep, got it. Ben, did you have one? Okay. Matthew, did you have your hand up? I think he answered it. As a point as an alternate day yeah. can be used, but yeah. he answered it. <coughs> I think that, um, that's it. 
includes my principal's report. It was a lengthy one. Thank you. Thank you. Turn it back over to the superintendent for sure. So fascinating enrollment yes, numbers so, and budget numbers. Um, in your packet is the enrollment report as of December 16th, 2022. Um, so as you all know enrollment this time of year remains pretty steady. We had two, two less students um, in December than we did in November. And we have over 1,215 students enrolled at Algonquin Regional High School. Also in your packet are financial reports. Um, and I will turn it over to Becky Pellegrino who will provide the FY23 monthly general fund expenditure report and the FY23 statement of revenue. Good evening. So the report that is included in your packet is as of December 31st, 2022. Um, and this marks actually the completion of the first six months of fiscal year 23. So we are halfway through the fiscal year. Um, as of that date, we had $571,626 or 2.22% remaining on the bottom line. We continue to trend very closely to where we were last year at this time, where we had $557,311 or 2.23%. So we're pretty much dead on with where we were last year. Um, we are starting to keep an eye on our teacher and our nurse substitute line items. Um, and these line items are ones that we are watching in addition to the utilities that I had previously mentioned. Also in that packet, you will see the athletic revolving account. And you'll note that as of December 31st, we had expended um, $123,472. Not to jump ahead to my next report, but the statement of revenue does show that we have received 170,000 in athletic fees and gate fees. Um, so at this time in FY23, we are sustaining um, the revolving account budget by these fees. And I welcome any questions on either of those reports. No questions. We need a, a vote to accept the general fund expenditure report until audited. So moved. Chris. Second. Second. Uh, Paul. All in favor? Unanimous and so statement of revenue. Okay. You already um, alluded to it. I touched on a little bit, but um, so during the month of December, we did receive the town <coughs> self bros assessment payment. Um, we also received our regular Chapter 70 and charter school tuition um, reimbursements. The one item that we still have not yet seen is the regional transportation reimbursement. Um, last year, we did receive that in February, and the prior year it was in March, so hopefully. This year it will be in January if they're moving forward um, each year. Um, the other thing that I did want to mention to you is with the athletic fees, um, we did receive just over 170000 That marks about two-thirds of what our projections were, which is um, very close to where we would expect to be at this point in time, considering we have completed the fall season and we're pretty much, um, well, we're, we're well into the winter season, but it really is at the athletic gate fees that we are looking at now versus the um, athletic fees. And then um, you will notice that overall, we have received 49.64% of what we anticipate receiving in terms of revenue. So again, halfway through the year, we're right on with our projections. 
questions about revenues? Need a motion to accept the revenue statement until audited. Moved. Paul? Second. Second. Karen? Oh, sorry, sorry, Karen's hand first. Sorry. Uh, all in favor? Unanimous. That passes. So, also in your packet is the FY24 budget priorities, the FY24 through FY28 capital plan, and the FY24 budget calendar. And I will note that we did add the town meeting dates. So, for um, Southborough, the town meeting date is town meeting is March 25th, and for Northborough, it is April 24th. So. Um, at this point in time, I will share with the committee the revised preliminary budget presentation. So I'm not usually able to guarantee too much to the committee, but I can guarantee that my presentation is not going to be as exciting as Lorraine's <laughs> presentation. Um, so this evening I'm presenting the FY24 revised preliminary budget. I will share that not too much has changed from the preliminary budget that was presented in December. But I will highlight the changes that um, so I think it's always important to talk about our purpose. Uh, we are mission and vision driven. Um, this evening through the science presentation, the principal um, report, you heard about opportunities for students to um, kind of achieve that portrait of the graduate and become collaborators, critical and creative thinkers, communicators, be civically engaged, growth oriented and healthy and balanced. Um, the fiscal year um, 24 is well underway, the budget process is well underway, and I'll highlight that it is a process. Um, I'm finding it hard to believe that we are, it's January 18th this evening, um, and as you can see, January, February, March, and April are real key months in terms of moving this budget forward and presenting it to uh, the town meeting voters uh, for hopefully approval. So the budget uh, variables at this point in time, so there are a number of um, budget drivers and variables that we're experiencing. So one of the unknowns at this point is collective bargaining, uh, specifically cost of living agreements. Um, we are engaging with the association on um, January 26th to begin negotiate COLA. That is an unknown at this point. We talked about out of district special education funding, the 14% increase will be advocating for increased circuit breaker um, to mitigate that cost. Um, special education transportation, um, so Marie and the support services team is trying to project what transportation costs will be for FY24. Um, increased energy costs, cost of supplies and materials, cost of services, insurance rates. So we are seeing the impact of inflation and the power of a dollar 
um, and it is impacting our overall budget. And lastly, insurance rates. We did meet with our insurance consultant to get an idea of what budget percentage to include in the fiscal year 24 budget. Um, so we were given a number of anywhere between an 8 to 10% increase over fiscal year 23, which is significant. Um, we are hoping that is a, um, not the case, and we're working closely with our consultant to make sure we get the best price possible. I will share that the consolidation that Northboro and Southboro did to move to a single uh, provider in coordination with Algonquin has helped. We have a much larger pool of subscribers, um, and I think it makes us a more, um, gives us more power in terms of trying to negotiate the best rate possible. So um, in your packet, I did include the budget priorities. Um, for, this, for the purpose of this presentation, I'll just speak to the fact that the budget priorities are essential in the work that we do. As a leadership team, it helps us determine um, what to prioritize in terms of um, moving, what to move forward in terms of goals. And also, um, a key document that helps us in the work is also our strategic plan, Vision 2026. We continue to benchmark against our five strategic objectives and make sure that um, the budget provides opportunities for students to, again, uh, achieve the portrait of a graduate um, and graduate uh, being prepared for a college career um, or whatever the, their next adventure might be. So where are we today in terms of the preliminary budget, survived preliminary budget? So um, in December, um, I presented a budget that uh, was reflective of a 5.57% increase over fiscal year 23. Um, the leadership team, um, directors, Becky, Keith, Stephanie, and I met many times to think about um, what does the budget landscape look like? What do we want to accomplish? And were there any opportunities to kind of reduce the, the percent increase over fiscal year 23? Um, the work that we did resulted in about a percent reduction in the overall budget request at this point in time. Um, so this evening we're presenting a $26,884,172 budget, um, which reflects a 4.5% increase over fiscal year 23. And I will share that there are a lot of projections in this number. Um, again, not having the state numbers in terms of um, Chapter 70, minimum local contribution, circuit breaker, uh, regional transportation, there are just a lot of unknowns at this point. And this budget is built on using the FY23 um, uh, numbers that we, that we do so in terms of the comparison between the preliminary and revised preliminary, I will highlight um, the third row, special ed, special ed out of district transportation. So unfortunately, um, this number increased um, from our preliminary. So again, working with the student support services team and really trying to project special education transportation costs, we did see an increase um, of about $35,000. Also, um, salary increases in COLAs. Um, we projected for the preliminary $724,328. Um, we worked very closely on um, looking at personnel and personnel requests for fiscal year 24, and we did reduce that um, 
to $599,728. And I will just put an asterisk there that we are still in contract negotiations and this is subject to change based on uh, how negotiations move forward. So the revised preliminary budget drivers um, total $1,360,493. Um, budget offsets, um, so comparing what was presented from the preliminary to the revised preliminary, um, we did increase our um, circuit breaker tuition reimbursement offset by about $125,000. Um, we also, um, salary increases in, in COLAs um, by $50,000, retirements and leave of absences, $123,000 and then special education adjustments of about $125,000. So the budget offsets um, total $1,296,840, um, which is a significant increase over the preliminary budget that was presented in December. So the budget that is being presented this evening as the revised preliminary does not have any recommended staff reductions. I will note that we are seeing a slight decline in our enrollment in fiscal year 24. However, I think it's an opportunity for us to continue to really make sure that our class sizes are um, healthy, that students have opportunities to make connections with adults, um, and again, help students achieve our, our mission and vision that we have established. One of the impacts of the budget reductions is um, something that we have not done um, in the past for um, since I, my tenure in the district, and that is utilization of um, a small portion of Y24 circuit breaker. Um, and what the impact is that it could impact circuit breaker in <coughs> Um So usually we spend circuit breaker in the second year. Um, and in the FY24 budget, we are um, recommending expending 125000 um, in FY24. In terms of staffing requests that are not in the budget at this point in time, and I will note that we still have a lot of conversations as a leadership team um, working toward the February um, recommended budget presentation. Um, we did ask the leadership team to prioritize the positions, um, and on the screen you can see the priorities from um, one being um, top priority to six being the least um, of a priority. The OG reading tutor, I think we've added that into the budget. Not yet. Not yet. Yes. Um, so these have not been added. I thought we added the OG reading tutor, but obviously we've, we've added two additional ESPs yes. based on students moving up. And just lastly, in terms of the, the varsity assistant coaches, so um, one of the conversations we had is we, we do have an athletic fee, um, so we are collecting fees from families. And at this point in time, um, the conversation was we don't feel like we we don't think feel like we're at a point where we should be adding coaches while we're still collecting. Um, so it's a conversation that we'll continue to have with um, Mike Mosserino um, and Principal Penn. But the total FTE is 3.46. Um, 
the total projected cost is $261,540, which is about a percent of the overall budget. What um, is included in the budget is um, instructional materials and supports. Um, so as you can see, making sure we have updated resources for our educators and our students. Um, that total is a, a little over $140,000. And I would characterize this budget as a, um, a level services budget with some growth area in targeted areas. Um, so the budget, the revised preliminary is $26,884,000. $172, um, which reflects a 4.50% in, uh, increase over fiscal year 23. I'll also note that this budget does implement the reduction, complete reduction of student activity fees. Um, so the committee a year ago set a two-year plan to remove um, student activity fees. So. Um, this is the final phase of so next year, FY24, there are no student activity fees um, that students will be charged. And I think that is a great success story. And then lastly, um, again, part of the work that we need to do is think about the um, statutory distribution of the overall budget. Um, so I'll just briefly share where we think we are today, but just again, um, highlighting that there's a lot of data that we don't have at this time. So first of all, Chapter 78, so we're using the fiscal year 23 number, um, the regional transportation aid, which is a fiscal year 23 number, um, and then revenues. So you sum those items, and you get a total, and you subtract that from the overall um, budget. Um, in this case, we're projecting that the overall budget after offsets will be $22,818,971. Um, and then we get the minimum local contribution from the state of Massachusetts. This is a number that is provided to us. Um, this is the number that is most difficult to predict. Um, we've, we've gotten better, but it is a very, again, it's a, it's a very complicated formula. And if you can figure it, figure it out, then probably should have a road show with superintendents across Massachusetts. <laughs> um, but we're using the FY23 um, MLC numbers because that's the best data that we have. So in Northboro last year, the minimum local contribution was a little, little over $8 million. In Southboro, it was a little over $5 million. So we subtract that from uh, the FY24 budget after offsets, and that is the amount that we have to apportion by the regional agreement, which is um, basically enrollment as of October 1. This is important because this really helps the, the towns understand what the regional budget impact will be on our overall budgets um, at the town level. So as you can see, Northboro portion is 61.22% of the student body and Southboro's portion is 38.78%. We have the apportionment <coughs> by regional agreement. We add the minimum local contribution, and that is the total amount that is apportioned to um, the community. So in Northboro, it's a little under 14 million, and in Southboro, it's a little over 8.5 um, 
$8 million. Um, as you can see from the FY23 assessments, um, the difference from FY23 for North Borough is 8.75% and South Borough is 8.49%. And you will notice there's parity between the two apportionments, so the percent increase is similar. In prior years, that's not been the case. Last year, for example, North Borough's contribution was zero, and South Borough's was, I think, about $600,000. And that is just how the equation works. What we are recommending um, is that the Regional School Committee consider applying um, access and deficiency of $675,000. Basically, E&D can be used to mitigate the assessment impact, the tax impact to the taxpayer in each community. Um, and Becky has done some work looking at our regional policy for E&D, and by applying $675,000, we still uh, remain within the regional uh, school committee policy of E&D. So $675,000 um, apportioned. Um, the total percent increase for each community for North Row is 5.53%, and then South Row is 5.29%. I will caution you that this is the best information that we have at this point in time, but the towns are looking for this level of information so that they can add this to their budget projections as they move forward um, finalizing their budgets. And I will stop um, and answer any questions that people may have. I'm, I'm gonna have a granular question and then people can have bigger ones. On um, one student and staff devices seems like a very large increase, uh, you know, like, um, and, and there's a discrepancy between one sheet it says $84,006 and another one says $93,000. I'm just wondering. So, wondering. <laughs> so, what, why the significant increase? Well, um, wondering why the significant increase and could that be tapered? Or, I mean, in the larger sense of a $26 million budget, that's not going to. Uh, but there, but there are two different numbers in the presentation, also. So we can all look at that and make sure that um, it is the eighty-four. Okay. Yes. You, you see on the other one, it says yes. ninety. Okay. So part of the work we, as a leadership team, still need to do. We also have um, ESSER funds um, that we need to apply. Yep. Um, part of the increase to overall um, technology line item is that we are purchasing devices, one-to-one um, -one devices for the incoming freshmen. Um, currently, we have a bring-your-own-device right. policy. Um, this actually provides year one of us being able to phase in um, purchasing devices for students. Um, what we're finding is that having students bring in devices, um, although it, it seems like a good idea, um, it has been very challenging it's hard to manage an overall network as a result. So equity. This it's, is an phase one. it's an equity issue too. So that that's a line item then that will be similar year to year going forward. Then so okay. this is a commitment yeah. year one um, that we'll need to continue to make. Yeah. 
Can I just okay. clarify the two different numbers too? So the eighty-four thousand is the increase over last year's budget. Got it. But the total budget line item is ninety-three thousand. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Other questions? Sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> what, what? Can you go back to the six hundred seventy-five thousand dollars? You said I think you said the school committee has the right to. <coughs> the last page of your presentation? Yeah, access. What's, what is it? Can you explain that to me? Yeah, so access and deficiency is at the end of a fiscal year, um, through good fiscal management, if there is um, money left over from what was appropriated. So let's say we have, we have a half a percent of- That's the remainder from last year? No, so this is, um, so we our E&D balance currently is, I believe it's a little over one point it's one point. It's one point. Oh, this uh, is a one. portion of our our E and D to reduce the assessment to each of the taxpayers in North Rockland South. And we're doing that because we think eight point seven five and eight point four nine is excessive. Correct. Yes. No, the only but five point five three is not. <laughs> I think I think there's some work to do. Um, and I think right now, with the data that we have, um, the 4.5% budget is based on just so many projections that it could come lower. Mm -hmm. um, the only way we can reduce the assessment to each of the communities is by reducing the overall aggregate budget. I will share that the 4.5% budget in aggregate is really the number that we need to focus in on. What the regional agreement and enrollment does is what it does. There's not a lot of control over that. Sure. The only control that the school committee has to try to impact that is through the E&D account. And the only thing we can do with the E&D, we can't, we can't put it towards an athletic complex project or fund other parts. The only thing we can do is reduce the assessment and D E and D is only applicable to regional school districts so the K through eights do not have that that same I guess fund available to them it's only at the regional level why do we have a balance at all mm -hmm. ever um, well I think first of all I think it, it part of this is that it um, make sure we have good fiscal management that at the end of the year, sure. once we've appropriated you know, our budgets, if we have a balance. Um, and then secondly, I think um, that is the only place it can go into our sure. E&D. Um, the school committee worked to develop an E&D policy so that there is a reserve. Um, I believe it's three and... Three and a quarter to three and three quarters percent. So the school committee set a policy to always maintain that level of e um, applying 675,000 allows us to s stay at the, the floor of that E&D policy. And we're also prohibited, we can only maintain a balance that does not exceed 5% of what our operating um, budget would be for the year. So we have to have this certified by the Department of Revenue each year, and so they're checking that level to make sure that we do not exceed that amount. Well, that's very clear. So mm -hmm. that, that there's there's no discussion on yeah. that. Thank you. I, I think also, do we have a policy where we use part of that for OPEB? Didn't we do a part of that last year? 
I think we talked about it, but I don't think we ever we didn't. Okay. formalized that. I think one of the, the strategies that we're trying to employ is that um, we can have a special <laughs> education um, reserve account and we can have a capital stabilization account. At the end of the fiscal year, right now, we only have the option to put it in E&D, where um, we're trying to move through the town of South Road's been approved in North Road creating a capital stabilization fund so we can put some money in. So if we have capital projects on our capital plan, we actually can move forward with some of those projects. Other questions? I do Karen? have a question and I'm, I'm just looking at this. So when you, when I'm looking, Looking at the staff and student devices is 93,000. Oh, so you moved to ESSER. I know that's what you're just talking about, but I just wanted to see it in the slide. So you took it out of the budget then? It's, it's I'm not sure. So that will be our next step to look at some of the areas where we can free up and reduce so this. So it's not yet. Not you, yet. It's potential. Yes. So. Yeah. yeah. Cause my, okay, because my other question was then also about ESSER and like Title I funds and could you use that for your own or Gillingham tutor? Probably, mm -hmm. do you, you know, I know it's we, optimal mm -hmm. to have it in the budget because you don't want to, you know, lose that person, but I'm just wondering. We did talk about <coughs> that recently about, mm -hmm. or at least Becky and I did, mm -hmm. I think yes. about Title I. Um, we've been talking about a few different options there. Um, right now, a lot of the Title I funding has been supporting tutoring in the area of mathematics. But there's there's a lot of interplay and discussion about the use of the various grants for different pieces, and we haven't got that. It's a puzzle that we haven't got all the pieces in place yet. Yeah. So we're still working through that. Kathleen? Just a quick question. Um, when Amy Collins came and spoke before about not having transportation fees, are those um, the ones that are being put back in to the budget? Yeah, so um, we did have a conversation with Amy, mm -hmm. and those. That, that, is, that amount reflects her request for the transportation costs. Okay, thank you. And the out-of-district transportation for um, uh, for the SPED folks, that's that's hit that an increase, an unexpected increase. Okay. We've been, um, Marie and I have been on multiple phone calls actually with our um, special education transportation provider over the past few weeks and we're really trying to get that number um, to a better place. I'd say for <coughs> next year we've been doing a lot of internal work and I, I think that we've actually come to an agreement with them so I'm hoping to see that number come okay. down a little bit. All right, I know that's hard and sometimes just a hard stop but just want to keep track of that. Thank you. Chris? Just a question related to that. Is that specifically, um, specifically the special ed out of the district transportation, is that because we have additional students being transported or they are charging more for the service? Um, that was actually the, that reflects the addition of a new student. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and, and an increase, yes. An increase in 
out of district special education transportation. Yes, yeah, so the initial preliminary number reflects that initial increase and then the revised was a new student being added. All right, while, so I'm going to shift gears and talk about the athletic complex. And since we are on the topic of finances, um, Becky's going to provide kind of an overview of where we are in terms of financing the overall athletic complex project. And Keith will provide an update of where we are in terms of uh, moving this project forward. Okay, so the warrant language that you see on the screen is actually language that's been provided to us by our bond council. Um, as a regional school district and the school committee, you have the authority to actually um, authorize the district to borrow money for capital projects such as the athletic complex. Um, what happens when the school committee takes a vote to authorize um, the borrowing of funds is that we then as a district need to send a letter to our member towns, Northborough and Southborough, um, alerting them to the fact that we have the school committee has authorized us to borrow money. Um, they then have 60 days to either vote to <coughs> approve or deny, or they can take no action. And if no action is taken by either committee, then the district actually has, will, can automatically move forward with the borrowing. We are working with both communities on the athletic project, um, and so, with the timing of the town meetings um, after a conversation with our bond council the other day, um, we will be having the school committee take this vote at the March meeting, which will then start the clock on the 60 days and it will comply with both of the town meeting dates in Northborough and Southborough. Once the committee takes that vote, we do need to send um, a letter to both communities the general law says seven days, but our regional agreement does mean that we have to um, provide them that notice within two days of the school committee taking the vote. So um, we will have that ready to go if the vote is approved. Um, the other difference with the regional school district borrowing is that usually when there is some sort of um, debt issuance um, in a community, it's two thirds vote. With this, it's only a mature majority vote in both communities. Mm -hmm. Um, so that is a, another nuance to this. Um, so we are, uh, you know, working, I think, behind the scenes to also get that final number. We are hoping to have bids out, um, I'd say, by m the middle of February with a return date of March 10th, which would give us um, a firm number um, that the school committee would then be able to vote on and that we would be able to provide to the towns. Um, so that is really some of the work that we're doing behind the scenes on the, uh, the financing of the project. So no vote. <coughs> we talked about voting on this, but we're going to move it off to March. So we have yes, if a we timeline. Vote, if we voted this evening, yeah. the town meetings would not be, they'd have to hold special town meetings because it's outside of the because 60 of days us. of the current ones that are scheduled. Yeah. So I think, I don't think it'd be wise for the committee to exercise that right at this point in time. No. Any questions about that part or about the budget? I think 
comments? I think I, I have a, oh, I'm sorry. If yeah, I, go I ahead. Could, no. I have a, maybe a comment or a request. Um, and it goes back to the the excess and deficiency, and I think you kind of described it well, how there's guardrails around, you know, the maximum it can be and then the minimum. Um, and I don't know if this would be new, but I, I think I'd appreciate beyond the budget, which is more kind of income-based, the excess and deficiency, I guess, would be cash that the region has in its bank accounts to support the, ex the expenditures. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't mind trying to see if you can present to us what is the assets of the, the region basis that we're going to be pulling from that excess deficiency that we, we can just see it, that we're comfortable we have that cash available to um, delay the increase in the budget to the towns because I guess eventually if the budget keeps going up, you would have to then ask for it because we can't continue to draw on the, the E&D. So I just wouldn't mind seeing a balance sheet view in cash view of the region. Sure. And it doesn't need to be tonight. I mean, it, it can be like. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like oh, you're right. I'm writing myself a note so I don't forget. <laughs> yes, we right. can find it. I thought you were going to pull yes, it up. Right? <laughs> you almost did. I know. <laughs> I can, it's impressive. It is, like Greg was saying, the only mechanism we have to protect ourselves for a few things, um, and particularly to use towards assessment. And like I, I know I've been a part of other discussions about just drawing that down to zero, but then um, then there are challenges um, if unexpected things come up, or and then there's no ability to provide relief to the taxpayers either at the end of the year, so it is complicated and seeing that would be helpful for us to understand or the public who may be watching um, to understand too. Yeah, we can also provide you a historical perspective of how much E&D we've applied to prior budgets to get a sense of, you know, what that's looked like. I think yeah. when, any, when you get used to applying a revenue source <coughs> to impact a budget, it's easy to become reliant upon that to get to percentages that might be more amenable in terms of uh, what the town would like. Um, but I, we can provide that data to you and information. Right, because I suppose if I understood you correctly too, the circuit breaker, you, you were making a comment that you were pulling something forward that we typically haven't. So I yeah, so get we to would where have, we are now. Like, correct. So we are using our FY23 circuit breaker number, our FY23 chapter 70 number, regional transportation aid, because typically typically we'd have a sense of what those numbers would be at this point in time. And they fluctuate from year to year. So we are, I think we are using a conservative number mm -hmm. using FY23. Okay. It's frustrating because we're, we're, we have budget timelines. We're asked to create and provide a budget um, to the committee for approval in time for the towns and town meetings when we don't necessarily have all the data that we need um, at the time to create a budget. And these also go hand in hand with the K to eight budgets, mm -hmm. so it's not we're not operating alone. Yeah, I think, and I'll just I'll end on this. And I think we need to really focus in on the overall aggregate percent increase mm -hmm. of the the budget. The if the apportionment and the percent increase to the communities does what it does. There's, 
there's really no control over that um, you know, from year to year. The, the 4.5 is what you're talking about. 4.5, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Which is tough. I mean, on it's yeah. a tough number to say after many years of... of I mean, I think, I, I think the last thing I'll just end on next steps and before I turn it over to Keith. So, um, you know, Principal Bevan and the leadership team, directors, will continue to have budget conversations around, you know, what is the recommended budget we'd like to bring to the committee for a vote in February. We will be convening the operational budget subcommittee um, to continue discussions around a direction to provide us with good information to head in. And also, we will be uh, providing the um, committee our annual budget booklets that contains the line item budget, a ton of information based on the 4.5% um, and what we know now. Um, and that will be in the next week or so. Thank you for the work. Anything else? Um, Keith, just an update on kind of the moving the, the, the project forward in terms of the working group. Yes. <coughs> so Becky, Becky said it very well, and uh, the end goal is to provide um, uh, authentic bid materials that will go out to the public uh, in, in mid-February with a closing date of early March so that we can get a solid number for you. Uh, to ultimately send send to the towns for approval. But in order to get there, a lot of work is being done behind the scenes. Gale Associates has been our partner, our engineering partner, to get there. Uh, they're working through the permitting process in the town of Northboro. Uh, they successfully received permitting from the Conservation Commission for their land disturbance permit. Uh, so that was successfully done uh, last week. Um, in addition to that, at the end of this month, they will be before the planning board uh, for their site plan approval and the permitting related, related to that. So in order to get there, the planning board did have a number of questions and Gail Associates has done some nice work uh, in preparing answers, responses to those questions and I feel confident uh, that, that that meeting will, will go well for us at the end of the, end of the month, which will then prepare us to go out for bid in mid-February. So. In addition to all that work that's happening behind the scenes, uh, the building committee that is uh, chaired by Paul Desmond and uh, David Roman uh, met last Monday uh, to uh, assess some marketing materials to get the word out to the public. So in the next couple of weeks, there'll be a series of meetings with stakeholders, whether it's youth sports, we're gonna meet with coaches tomorrow night to discuss the project, to discuss some of the details that, that's out there. Um, and, and certainly uh, garner any questions. And the key of all of that is to really get accurate information in the hands of the in, in the hands of the communities and the citizens, so they can feel as informed as possible about the project. Uh, it is an important project. It's a big one, and we want to make sure that accurate information is out there. So a lot of work has been done to create materials that are user friendly. Uh, the website is active and updated, and and that'll be part of the continuum. Kathleen. I sure. don't recall hearing before about a land disturbance yeah. permit and would like to know more about that, please. Well, the good thing is that nothing's being disturbed because it's on the exact footprint that is currently being used. So no tree removal, nothing like that. It is a requirement of the site plan when we are doing this level of construction to go through that permitting as, as a preventative measure, but also to make sure we are doing the retaining properly and all the things that happen during construction. So uh, it met satisfactorily with their, with their request. Thanks. Yep, no problem. Um, so like I mentioned, we are going to be meeting with, the, with these groups, um, and, and that's going to be part of just getting that information out in, in front of people. And I would like to mention 
uh, that we will be having a public forum uh, about the project. It has been launched. A lot of the principals, uh, including Sean, has sent it out to, uh, to the schools to inform that, that on February 6th from 7 to 8 in the auditorium here, Greg, myself, the engineering firm, um, athletic director Masarino will be on site as well as I believe Paul and other members of the committee to answer questions and to talk about different aspects of the project. project. And we will be continuing to send that out uh, to, to the communities. So I think the, the other piece of it I'd like to say and it's kind of caught in the details is that we did share a lot of this information with the principals and they are doing some active work of getting the um, project information in front of uh, PTOs, SOSs in Southboro as well as school councils. So that's part of the work that's being done to, to get the information in front of people. So I think we're on target, we're on schedule. Um, Gale Associates, like I mentioned, has been a great partner um, and we will um, hopefully be ready for bid in a little less than a month. It's exciting. What time's the public forum? Six Seven to eight Seven. on February 6th. Um, so, That, that's not a protected meeting, so therefore, if too many of us show up, then it's now a quorum, and it's actually a meeting. So, so none of us should. We should ensure that not too many people show up at that. <laughs> True. Well, I mean, so so I so I guess so. Good in light point. of that, would it be possible to have some sort of coordinated presentation ahead, so that perhaps we don't have to attend? I, I guess. Yeah. We should be thoughtful on that because. For those that are just joined, perhaps all of you are very well aware. I think it would be good if you could maybe have some sort of summary that would give us details so that we, in fact, could help advocate on behalf and help Sean and Paul and everyone. I'm pretty That's sure a meeting like that is covered under some sort of exception to open meeting. Yeah, I think as long as we're not <coughs> discussing and yeah. deliberating. Yeah. But I mean, I wouldn't sit together, <laughs> things like that. I think we should double check. Sure. Well, so you could always I, I, post I just, it. I, I don't. I just. I just had the conversation with town clerk. And yep. So I don't. Yeah. I think one uh, of the things. Double check. That's one right. of the things yeah. we can do is we do have our marketing materials, which consists of four documents. So we can disseminate that information to all committee members, and then we'd be happy to sit down with any committee member who <coughs> would have more information about the project in more detail, um, <coughs> to make sure everyone has good information so absolutely we can do that good question um, coalition for equity update calendar sure so the coalition for equity um, did meet um, so Rota Webb um, is leading that coalition um, one of the outcomes of the last meeting was forming a, um, coalition for equity calendaring advisory group um, so we have a um, cadre of equity members as well as, as some community members and religious leaders um, who are reviewing the FY23-24 student calendar, um, talking about specifically religious observances in the calendar, and um, potentially going to make some recommendations that I will then bring back to the committee. The first uh, meeting, I think, went very well. I think there are a lot of great ideas on the table, a lot of great conversations and dialogue, um, and it was a good start. Um, we do plan on meeting again um, January 26th, a week from tomorrow, to continue the conversations. And uh, Ben also serves on that um, 
coalition and the working group of the coalition. Did I miss anything then? I don't think so. Um, one question I had regarding the coalition that I think com came up with some conversations with my peers today and with a couple of teachers. Um, the equity audit that the district did, what's kind of happening with that and the yeah, recommendations so, that came from it? So one of the things we did in terms of our um, action plan for the 22-23 school year is we included specific recommendations of the equity audit into our action plan. Um, one of the things we talked a lot about is what we don't want to do is have five or six action plans around different topics. What we want to do is we want to have a strategic plan and then weave in those action items from the equity audit into our annual um, action plans that we develop. So if you look at our action plan, you'll see specific recommendations from the equity audit in there. And then we report out to the committee on progress toward um, the action plan that, that's moving forward this year. Cool. Thank you. Well, um, do you anticipate bringing one recommended calendar or options for us? And I guess, would that be a question for the committee to ask? Yeah, I mean, I think right now, um, I think I presented three options, three calendars to the committee. I think now working with the working group, the coalition working group, we'll have a conversation around what do we want to bring to the committee uh, for further conversation. I would share that it would be nice if the committee had more than one option. I, I think that would be good. I, I would defer to others too, but I mean, it's our, no. our request of the superintendent of what he brings, right? So, yes, I would. I would agree. I would say that it would be great if the superintendent could bring forth, you know, based on the recommendation of the working group, more than one calendar for us to yeah. work with. Yeah, yeah and so I, you and I will work together and preparing that calendar. Okay. Calendar. <laughs> <laughs> what did I talk myself into? Okay. Yeah. Yes. You're on the Congratulations. Yes. Um, next is policy development. Again, not at this time. Back to public comment. Still not, John. Can I maybe at this time uh, suggest that we've not gotten a student report from Ben. Um, oh, thank you. And I, I neglected to mention that in my principal's report. I also want to welcome Ben back. He was not here for the December meeting, and I think it's important to note it's the first time we're seeing him since the winter ball, which was a giant success and would literally not have happened without Ben's <laughs> Uh, hard work and so many times we heard at this committee um, uh, donations he was receiving so I do want to make note of that because this is the first time we've seen him in a bit and his acceptance to yes. and his acceptance to Dartmouth yes okay. congratulations thank you very much so we're very proud of you Ben for lots of things but uh, you, you I, I don't know if now yeah I just want to mention so one of the conversations that principal Bevan and I had is having um, <coughs> a student representative uh, moving forward um, and Ben's the first so he's an inaugural principal's formal formal student report to the committee um, and getting in the habit of having a more formal <coughs> report um, of, from a student perspective so this evening is the first of many um, although it won't be Ben next year um, I'm sure he'll, <coughs> he'll set the tone this evening um, thank you um, so first like Mr. Bevan said with winter ball Thank you to all of you for approving the donations on behalf of the entire student body. It wouldn't have been possible without that. Special thanks also to Ms. Pellegrino and Ms. Willard and the team in central office 
handling all of those financials. We've been meeting since September to do it all, and we ended up putting together a $40,000 dance. So we basically put on a wedding. Um, <laughs> and we couldn't have done it with them. Um, with regards to like what's happening at the school right now, um, the biggest issue that I think students are facing right now is internet issues. Um, since the first day of school and continuing till today, um, like it's been very difficult to get a connection, to maintain a connection, to access educational materials, um, and it's causing like a pretty significant disruption to learning. Um, teachers are having to alter their plans last minute. Today during one of my classes, we had a teacher call the IT department to bring them a 35-foot um, ethernet cable so they could connect to the internet because their computer wasn't connecting. Um, and we had an ethernet run it cable running from the wall to the teacher's desk so she could grade midterms. Um, and that's kind of the biggest issue. Students aren't able to connect their devices and it's now most of our teachers are moving offline for lessons. Um, and I haven't used my computer in a class in weeks because teachers feel like it's causing too many difficulties and delays and having to waste time shifting lesson plans. So that's kind of what students are facing right now in terms of difficulties. Any other events or anything um, that the that are being planned, or I mean, how's how's student uh, spirit <laughs> aside? Overall, from <laughs> besides the internet, which is causing lots of frustration and conversations, it's a student spirit as well. Midterms are going on right now, so that's causing a understandable amount of you know general yeah. ugness. Um, <laughs> but overall, I think people are doing okay. Um, teachers prepared us all very well for our midterms. Um, Upcoming events, I know we have an open mic in a couple of weeks um, that Sachem is putting on and the Algonquin Writing Center is putting on. Um, our winter show is coming up. We're doing Putting for Patients, which is a fundraiser for the Jimmy Fund in the end of March. So that's kind of on the horizon and we're starting to get students excited about that along with all of our clubs and everything are active and healthy. So I think overall, student life is good. Thank you. Any questions? Just a question, and, and I'm sure not for Ben, but what is the probability or possibility of using more Ethernet cords, at least for the teachers? Yeah, it's not the long. It's not the long-term solution, and we're working on. Um, I mean, I I really don't want to get into what's happening here. It's not yeah. really the forum, okay. um, but we do have mitigation strategy to try to impact what what students are experiencing. Okay. And I'm thinking about the teachers, you know, yeah. one Ethernet cord can make their life a, a, a lot easier. And yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, let's see. So um, there was no public comment, personnel distribution report. Oh, sorry. Public comment, if I could. Yep. I just thought we should give a shout out to DECA, who had their, uh, I guess, the regional tournament this, this year. and. My son participated and he, and he said it was just dominated by Algonquin. You know, I don't have specific numbers, but they, the judges were even saying things like, oh yeah, Algonquin again. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, great job with that. I mean, it's just a tremendous program. It seems to get bigger all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it has grown a lot over just the last like four years. Or, yeah, it's great. Uh, personnel distribution report. So in your packets, a distribution report as of January 18th, we had, um, 
one retirement announcement, Linda Budenhagen, who is a speech and language <coughs> assistant. So we'll have an opportunity to thank her for her service um, in the months ahead. And then one resignation, um, an ESP, um, special education aid, effectively, effective January or February 17th. <coughs> and a communication from Desi saying that we have met so there. Compliance report and your packet just for your information. Approval <coughs> uh, of bills, agenda items for next month. Uh, the more the budget recommendation will be presented for our vote at that time, right? Correct. Yep. Okay. Anything else the committee would like at uh, that meeting? What department will be presenting next time? I think in February that I, I don't think there is a department presenting next okay. uh, in February because it's the recommended budget presentation. But okay. it, Sean will triple check. I think we all benefit so greatly from yeah. It. It's the best part of the meeting. Yeah. Um, so that moves us to executive session. I do have one, um, can I have one comment related to executive session? Could we potentially, I know we're talking about, we're going to enter collective, uh, sorry, executive session for collective bargaining. Is there any chance we could add um, security to that as well? It's not on the posted agenda. For the next meeting? Definitely for the next meeting. Okay. Okay. Security for the next meeting. Very good. World languages will be presenting, but not until March. That's true. So we need a motion to move to executive session without going back to open I'll session. I'll make a motion. So move that we move to executive session to discuss strategy with respect to collective bargaining with Algonquin Regional Teachers Association Unit A due to the chair's determination that a discussion regarding this matter in an open meeting may have a detrimental effect on the position of the committee with no intent to return to open meeting. Second. Second. Chris. Okay, so that moves us at 8.57. Uh, roll call vote. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Chris? Yes. Paul? Yes. Kathleen? Yes. Kathleen? Yes. Matthew? Yes. John? Yes. And Karen? Yes. Myself? Yes. It moves. <coughs> it's approved. 